this setting. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I know that we have some folks that are Ukrainian in our congregation or come from that, and so my heart goes out to you, to, our, uh, to your family. Um, I believe we have uh, churches in Acts 29. We're a part of a network called Acts 29. We have some churches, or at least a church. I should have looked that up, but um, in uh, Ukraine as well. And so we just want to continue to lift them up in prayer. Um, it's, uh, it's a disaster. So, uh, has your life been interrupted by Jesus? Has, has your life been disrupted, been interrupted by him? Or do you continue to persist in a, in a way that it acknowledges Jesus, acknowledges the pain that he went through, and yet your life has not been interrupted by him? Because when Jesus comes in and when, when he steps into a life, he disrupts who we were before and he causes us to be somebody new. There's, it, it, it even comes in our emotions, that it changes the way that we are emotional. It's, it changes what we look at. Has your life been interrupted by Jesus? Because the definition of a, a, of a Christian is somebody who has been interrupted by Jesus. And as I said last week, we're not with the many, we're with the few. We're a part of the few. We're a part of the, the few that are following the life of Jesus. And we've become disciples of him, truly disciples of Jesus Christ. Not in name only, I mean in practice. I mean in the heartthrob, in uh, e emotion, in, in, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we do politics, in the way that we do social media, in the way that we do sex, in the way that we do alcohol, in the way that we do everything, like the life of Jesus has interrupted me and has caused me to be something other than what I was before. My fear today is that many of us have no idea what it even means to have been interrupted by Jesus. What it even looks like, what, what it even is. Because Christianity has been reduced to, unfortunately, a political way of thinking. Not that you wouldn't have thoughts on politics as a Christian, but that it is primarily a political way of thinking. That Christianity has been reduced to a set of do's and don'ts, moral responsibilities, immorality that we don't want to be a part of. That Christianity has been reduced into that instead of a life that has been grasped by Jesus. I see three examples here of Lives that have been interrupted. Two that have been interrupted and one that I'm hoping will be interrupted, I should say. Look at the passage with me, if you will. Luke 23, verse 26. It says, and as they led him away, that is Jesus, they seized one 
Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, who is this Simon of Cyrene character? Now, he's named here, and so that's, that's really important. He's named in this passage. It's not, he, they grabbed some guy out of the crowd, but they, they grabbed Simon of Cyrene. They grabbed this guy. Who's Simon of Cyrene? He's probably a Jew. He has probably, I heard one commentator writing, and I don't know the veracity or the truth of, of this, but he, he may have saved for most of his life to make this trip to Jerusalem to go be a part of the Passover celebration. So he's on his way there, and he is, who knows, he may have camped outside of the city the night before, and he's, he's coming in, he's coming in, he's looking for a sacrifice. He's looking for an animal to go take to the temple and sacrifice that animal. So he's walking through the streets, perhaps he has his family with him. He is Jewish, and he's just kind of walking down the streets. It's, it's just, it's a joyous occasion, he's glad to be in Jerusalem, he's, he's finally here, maybe saved all of his life to make at least one trip here. It sounds like he's from quite a ways away. And so he's made this trip and he comes around the corner and all of a sudden, bam, there is a mass of people that are walking down the street. It looks like a parade. And he's, he's going, oh, I mean, like almost finds himself in the middle of people. He's got to step out of the way. He's just kind of standing there telling his kid, like, hey, stand back here a little bit. And then all of a sudden he begins to see these Roman soldiers who are walking along. There's four of them surrounding a man who has a beam, not an entire cross, but he has a beam on his shoulder. And this man is bloodied beyond belief. As you may know, he has a crown of thorns that have been pounded into his head. He has been scourged, meaning whipped, by uh, Pilate's men. He's been punched, he's been brutalized, he's been mocked. He is bloody head to toe. In fact, what most say is that it's very likely that his back had exposed bone, his back had exposed uh, uh, blood vessels, perhaps even into the arteries to, to some degree. He is bleeding badly. He is losing fluids very badly. It, it, is, it is coming down his back, it's coming down his head, it's coming down his legs. There's a trail of blood following him, and he is exhausted. He's been up all night, this man has. This man has been up all night, and he's been under trial, he's been questioned. He has not had much to say to anyone. Very little to Pilate, nothing to Herod. And so he's, he's uh, walking down the street, there's blood trailing behind him. These four soldiers are next to him, and he is stumbling. He can barely carry this thing. Imagine if you had gone through that amount of abuse, and then somebody laid a 90-pound sack of uh, sacri on your shoulder and told you, carry that. I mean, 90-pound sack of, of sacri is, is heavy as it is, but then to do that after you've been so abused is immense. It's crazy. He's barely vertical. He's almost on the ground. And in fact, he's probably fallen down multiple times. He falls down again in front of you. 
the soldiers stop and they're trying to get him up, but they're like, it's no use. This guy, we, this guy is about to die. They're taking him through the streets, the longest way to the hill where they crucify people so that everyone can see, don't mess with Rome. Do not mess with Rome. If you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. That's what they did for crucifixions, is they led him through the streets and then they crucified them on this hill as a warning, don't mess with us. They can't get him up off the ground. And so Simon is standing there horrified. Maybe his kids are sitting there and he's just going, oh, kids, honey, keep the kids back. All of a sudden, a Roman soldier turns around and goes, you, bam, grabs him. You're in. Pick up that, that beam. What's interesting about this is that Mark, in his gospel, says this uh, about the same story. Mark 15, 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, most commentators say this, like there's no other reason for them to mention Alexander and Rufus other than the fact that the people that Mark is writing to know Alexander and Rufus. It's, it's just these two guys, we know them. He, they compel the father of, the, our, of our two friends to carry the cross, to carry the cross beam. The post would have already been in the ground. But then what's also interesting about that is that the book of Mark was most like, likely written to the church in Rome. And what it says in the book of Romans, when Paul writes to uh, the, uh, the church in Rome as well, in Romans 6.13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. His family, it sounds like, here we have this guy who's just this hapless Jew who's walking through the streets, all of a sudden gets inscripted into doing this, carrying this cross, and all of a sudden this guy, his life is interrupted. Just like that. What's he doing? He's on his way to make a sacrifice. He's on his way to uh, fulfill Old Testament, uh, Old Testament rules and laws and things like that, to honor his God and so forth. That's what he's doing, but all of a sudden, his life is interrupted. His religion is interrupted. And what it looks like, and most say this, it looks like he and his family came to faith somehow. How did this happen? How did this happen? Well, I think if you put yourself in, in the shoes of Simon of Cyrene, He's standing there, and all of a sudden, he's inscripted into this. He's brought in this big, heavy beam that has blood all over it, is now on his shoulder. And he's thinking to himself, like, this has nothing to do with me. This has no, what, why, why am I being brought into this right now? This has nothing to do with me. You might notice that it says in Luke, in Luke alone, to carry it behind Jesus. In that first verse there, verse 26. So he is carrying this beam, he's, and he's walking now behind Jesus. There's something that has happened. There's something that has interrupted his story, and immediately he's brought into this, 
And he says, why should I care? Why should I care about, about this situation? Why would I be brought into this? This is just some first century Jew who is being crucified. He probably deserves it. Who knows? He probably said some dumb things. I mean, why should I care about that? There's lots of people today that, that feel that way, that say, why should I care about this, this guy, Jesus? Why should I care about this so-called historical figure? What, what difference does it make to me? I, I wonder if, if Simon of Cyrene is not also asking that question, why should I care about this? But as he's going along, Jesus is becoming exhausted beyond exhaustion. He is barely standing. The, the soldiers may be holding him up or grabbing him and get up, you know. And Simon is carrying this beam in, and he's watching this unfold and he's just going, this poor guy, I don't care what he's done. Like, no one deserves this. Like, this is, this is inhumane. Like, he, he begun, be, begins to become indignant, maybe. He's indignant over what's happening to this man, and, and he's thinking to himself, like, what, what in the heck did this guy do to deserve this level of punishment? As some are jeering, so he begins to feel some remorse. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man, this poor guy. What's going on here? Is he even gonna make it? I'm getting his blood all over my feet. It's all over my shoulder. Now he's sweaty, his family is back there. What is going on here? So Simon has a front row seat to this man who supposedly is a criminal and he is doing extremely badly. So it says here in verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, who are these women? Here are these women who, they, they could be people that Jesus knows. They could be. The, we, we don't know for sure. But he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. And so most likely, what it is, it's, it's not people that Jesus personally knows. They, they could have known what he's done. I, I don't, how could you not? They've been in town there. They've seen him heal some people, perhaps, whatever it is. But they're these Jewish women, these daughters of Jerusalem, and they are sitting there, and they are also crying out. They're lamenting. In that culture, it would have been customary to wail loudly, to wail loudly, to perhaps tear your clothes and to to uh, just be very emotional, physically and visibly torn up. And so here are these women, they're mourning for him. Simon, remember, is behind him. He's watching him. He's, he's, he's watching this. These, these women over here are, are wailing and crying, and he's watching this unfold as they're wailing for him. And Jesus gives his last sermon. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, that's confusing. In fact, the whole thing is confusing. 
you wonder, like, why is Jesus saying that? And here's just a hint. Whenever you see something that Jesus says that doesn't make sense, there is gold in there. There is gold in there. When, when, you, when you finally untie this thing, you go, whoa, it's like, it's a present, you know? It's, it's amazing to see it. And so Jesus says, daughters of Jerusalem, he addresses them kindly. He addresses them as, as friends. He addresses them and he says this, don't do this, but do that. He essentially says to them, you're doing it wrong. Daughters of Jerusalem, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Now what are they doing wrong? What are they doing? He says, behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. The first thing he says to them is he says, there's going to be a day that comes when although in this culture it is thought incredibly sad if you cannot have children. Like in this day, like having children was it. But Jesus says there's a day coming when the women who are barren and cannot have children are actually going to like almost rejoice and say, I'm so glad that I don't have kids right now. Like this used to be a curse, but now this is a blessing. He says there's a day coming when that's going to happen, when people are going to say that. He says, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it, when it is dry? Jesus says, I, I don't want you to weep for me. I want you to weep for you. There's two things that he says there. And he interrupts these, these women's lives and he says, you're, you're crying for the wrong thing. He's essentially saying, your sentimentality towards, oh, this is poor Jesus. You're, you're feeling that like this is so sad. While it is sad, and you would be a heartless human being if you did not look at this and say, poor Jesus, there's something wrong with that. There's, there's something wrong here when the only thing that you have, the only feeling that you have is a, a sentimental feeling of, ah, oh, Jesus is being brutalized. You would be heartless if you looked at the, the war in Ukraine and you didn't feel remorse for those people. But Jesus says, I'm not looking for human remorse. Don't weep for me. Why? Because even though it's a source of natural empathy, it is mostly a source of Christian joy, his crucifixion. It is a source of meaning for us 
Jesus says, you're weeping over the wrong thing. If all that you do is, is get emotional about Jesus being beaten and tortured, if, all, if that's all that it is, if you, if you find yourself thinking, I, I need to sense what Jesus has gone through, if you find yourself feeling like, I, I need to get a, a greater sense of this, I've gotta go home and watch the passion of the Christ, or I, I need to read this and, and try to imagine it, and I'm hearing what Pastor Matt is saying to me right now, and I, and I want to feel that, I want to feel that sentimentality towards Jesus, Jesus says, save your breath. Because that's not what he's looking for. That's not what he wants. That is not what he needs from you. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why is that? Well, two things. There's two meanings in what Jesus is saying. The first meaning is this. It's a, it's a prophecy about what is to come. Jesus has already spoken about this once before. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. What happened then? Well, the Romans surrounded them, starved them out, and then killed them, the Jewish people. Now, this was considered to be God's judgment on the sin, uh, on, on national sin, the sin of Israel. And what was that sin? It's rejecting Christ. It's rejecting the Messiah that they have been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. And so there's this first meaning, which is talking about like immediately in, in AD 70, just a, a couple of decades away, there's that first meaning, actually four decades away probably. There's that first meaning, but then there's also a second meaning. And the second meaning of what Jesus says when he talks about this great judgment the second meaning is the final judgment. So there's the first meaning, which is like right now, like in just a few years, what's gonna happen is that you people, Israel, is gonna wish that they had never been born. They're gonna wish that they had never, uh, that, that they had never had kids. They're gonna wish that this was all over with. It's going to be so painful. But Jesus is also pointing to the final judgment. And how do we know that? Because he's saying words that will also be repeated in Revelation. He's saying words that, that were repeated in the Old Testament, in Hosea, in Isaiah as well. He's saying these phrases. Look at this, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the, the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Who's the lamb? It's Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? What's it? That Jesus kind of says that. They will begin to say to the mountains, verse 30 of, 23, of chapter 23 in Luke, follow on us and to the hills, cover us. It says it again in, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 6. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Spurgeon says about this, he says, extinction is a boon too great to be permitted to the ungodly. 
Jesus turns and gives a sermon while he is on the Via Dolorosa, the road of sorrows, the road to his crucifixion. He turns and he gives this amazing, gracious little sermon that says, you're crying for the wrong thing. You're feeling bad for me. You're feeling bad that I'm going through this. That's great and all, and you would be unhuman, inhumane, if you did not do that. But what you really need to weep about is that there is a judgment that is coming, and you must weep for yourself. Jesus is saying, until you truly weep for yourself, you cannot weep truly for me. You cannot appreciate what I'm even doing on this road. You cannot appreciate the whipping. You cannot appreciate the crown of thorns. You cannot appreciate the blood. You cannot appreciate the exhaustion. You cannot appreciate the cross. You cannot appreciate the nails. You cannot appreciate the mocking. You cannot appreciate that the Son of God was crucified until you understand what you have to weep about. Now, what do we have to weep about? Well, first of all, there is weeping that must take place for their sin. What was Israel's sin? Israel's sin was the rejection of the Son of God was rejection of this son of God that has come to them to show them the way, to, to become the final sacrifice, to become the one that they should follow, the one that would give himself for, for them and for their sins. The first thing that they must weep over is their sin. And the second thing is for the punishment that comes for that sin. Now many people want to reject the idea of God's judgment. I was speaking to someone just recently who I, I don't believe would uh, count themselves as a Christian. And he had a compelling story about having gone to church as a young boy and all he heard was the judgment of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of God. The judgment of God, you, you, you've the, the judgment, judgment, judgment. And I told him about the grace of Jesus. And he said, that part I hadn't heard. All I heard was about the judgment. All I heard was, was this. Jesus says, if you don't weep for yourselves, you can't weep for me though. Now, what place does judgment have in our world today? What place does judgment have in your life? God's judgment. Awful judgment. Judgment that that is going to be so terrible, terrible that people are going to want to die and can't. That people are going to say, fall on us and our existence. Annihilate us. It would be better that I had never existed. Jesus is saying, like the judgment that comes for rejecting Christ as Savior, the judgment that comes for our sin is so awful that you will wish you had never been born and that you had never had kids. That is the judgment. How do we know this? Many people go through life and they 
they have experiences in their life where they have sinned, sinned greatly. And for most of their life, they work very hard to atone for those sins. They try to atone for those sins and atone for those sins. Maybe they help other people. Maybe they give to the poor. Maybe they uh, try to do more good than bad. Sometimes people have done things that to them, at least, are so horrendous that they find themselves in this place where, where they are constantly dealing with this shame, with this guilt. They cannot help but beat themselves up constantly. It is like a megaphone in their mind saying, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong, you are wrong, you're worthless, no one should accept you, there's something wrong with you, and there's this reverberation that's happening in their head where, they, where they're, they're sensing this great conviction. And what is that great conviction? They know in their heart of hearts, without even being able to articulate it, that judgment is coming. That there really is truth. No matter what our world says, there really is truth and I have violated it. I have violated a being, and there's this sense of, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and people do all kinds of things to try and avoid that sense of shame, that sense of failure, that sense of regret. If I work real hard, then I can forget about that. If I occupy myself, if I can numb, numb my life, through endless entertainment, if I could numb my life through some type of substance, if I could numb my life with sleep, if I could numb my life with money, with sex, with power, if I could just numb myself. But Jesus says, I don't want you to numb yourself to that reality. I want you to weep for that reality. For them, the national sin of Israel for us, it's the personal sins of individuals that have rejected this God. And the idea of judgment is so horrific. And not just the idea, the reality of the wrath of God impending on us is not just a slap on the wrist. It is, I want to die. Mountains fall on me and there will be no Relief, As Spurgeon says, it would be too great a boon to be permitted to the ungodly. God will not allow it because he is completely righteous and he is completely just. And he must, as a righteous God, punish all sin. Jesus is saying this. The guy who people say, you know, Jesus is my homeboy. They say that, you know, Jesus is love. He would never, ever you know, uh, condemn someone. He would never judge someone. He would never do those things. They have missed the point of the Bible. They have missed what Jesus said here. Jesus turns and he says, the most gracious thing that I can say to you, the last words, my last sermon is this, daughters of Jerusalem, I love you so much that I've got to correct this one little thing. Like if all you do is mourn the fact that I was brutalized. You've missed it. 
It's not just care or concern for Jesus. That's tantamount to care and concern for the nation of Ukraine. That's human, that's good, that's fine. But what I really want and what you must get is that you will not understand me and what I'm doing right now until you weep for yourself. Until you weep for yourself, you cannot truly weep for Jesus. Until you weep for yourself, you can't understand why it would say in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Until you weep for Jesus, you can't understand what it even means to be, and until you, I'm sorry, until you weep for yourself, you cannot understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because here we have Simon of Cyrene, who's probably, there's no way that he did not, that he has not gone through a world of emotions from, why did they, why did they do this to me? And then beginning to feel remorse for him. And then hearing this little sermonette with these women. As he goes, this guy doesn't want your sympathy. He wants their repentance. He wants their acknowledgement. He wants them to be released from this sin. He wants them to avoid judgment. And so it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus is brutalized and then he gets to this place and he is crucified as a criminal among criminals. He is counted as a criminal. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How does he make intercession? How does he pray for those who are not even weeping over their sin? So you can hear a sermon like this and, you're just, and you just have to say, dude, I don't feel it enough. Pastor Matt, I hear you. I want to weep over my sin. I want to be counted as one who's weeping for myself. I want to do that. I want to do that. And I, I've just been in that place before and, it's, and I just say to myself, like, I just don't think I'm sorry enough. I just don't think I regret it enough. I don't think that I'm, I'm a good enough Christian. I don't think anything like that. I'm not weeping enough. I'm not sad enough over it. But Isaiah 53, 12 has an inkling. He was numbered with the transgressors. 
See, he was numbered with not just these two criminals, but he was numbered with us. He, he takes all of your sin, he takes all of your indiscretions, he takes all, takes all of your transgressions, he takes all everything wrong, all the, the fact that you haven't weeped enough, he takes all of it. And he goes to the cross with it. And while he's sitting on the cross, rather nailed to the cross, this is what he says to the people who are not weeping, but are actively sinning against him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what is Jesus forgiving there? Is he, is he saying, okay, all of these people that are sinning against me, I want them to be forgiven for all the things that they've done, carte blanche, like it's, it's done, like that's, that's one and done, and now they're all going to be with me in paradise. No, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to these people in that particular way, in that sense, he's saying, my heart, Father, my heart is that the people that are sinning against me and don't even understand the ways that they're sinning against me, the people that are, that are my heart posture towards them is that they would be forgiven. My heart posture is that they would receive forgiveness. And so he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm, I'm, my heart, Jesus says, is that the people that don't even understand it would get it. And so here he is. He's offering this to you. Has your life been interrupted by Jesus in this way? Because there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to destruction. And the way that seems right to a man today is that I, it might be, I go to church, I somehow acknowledge, yes, Jesus, yes, yes. But there's not been true salvation. There has not been true discipleship. Because there's simply been weeping over what happened to Jesus and not weeping over the fact that you put him there. Not weeping over the fact that he's dying in my place. And how does that happen today? It happens with people that are so sidetracked by current events that they are losing their ever-loving minds over political issues. I will say it and I will say it again. The foolishness that is involved in leaving churches, and I, we, we do not have this, I'm not talking about me, leaving churches over a political difference shows that evangelicalism today and evangelicals, many of them, most, have not ever 
actually weeped over their own sin. They have not seen that their sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And so therefore, they cannot extend forgiveness to those who do not know what they do because they have never experienced the forgiveness of God, the grace of Jesus that is flowing down from his cross. And as a result, their hearts are not changed. Has your life been interrupted? A life that's interrupted goes from, here's natural human response that's weeping over what happened to Jesus to unnatural human response, which is, I'm weeping over my sin and I'm thankful to Jesus. And what, it ha what happens is this, is that I'm no longer weeping necessarily. Or, I mean, yes, it's brutal, it's terrible, but I'm glorying in the cross of Jesus. I'm glorying in the fact that like, he had to do that for me. Praise him, praise him, praise him. And then what happens with your life? What happens with your heart? What happens with your mind? The old hymn, The Wondrous Cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow me or thorns compose so rich a crown? He's my king, his love is flowing down. And it's for me. He goes on. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing. So divine. What happens when I see this love? I only see this love when I see why he had to love me so much. Love so amazing. So divine. Demands my soul. My life. My all. It demands everything about me. It demands my emotions. It demands my sex. It demands everything that I have. It demands my finances. It demands every piece of me. It demands my politics. It demands my social media. It demands everything that I am. It demands that I go tell people about Jesus because love uh, his love is so amazing. It is so of God that it demands everything. It demands everything. Another hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's living in amazement because I've weeped over my sin, over the judgment that is coming. It's amazing forgiveness. See, if you don't understand the judgment of God, you will not understand the love of God. If your life has never been interrupted with Jesus and who he truly is, you cannot weep properly. You cannot see him for everything that he is. You cannot understand 
who he is. I am praying that we would become a church of people, thank you, who are deeply, so deeply embedded in this that we are impervious to the ridiculousness of our world because we're so aware of our sin and our impending judgment that we have run to Christ. Let's run to him this morning through communion. I want to invite you to...